we would like to begin this podcast by acknowledging that the land on which we record is the occupied, traditional, and unceded territory of the Stalo First Nation. Every decision I do is because I have given myself permission to do it. And, and that means there is something that I believe at the core that gives me permission to make this decision. So if I want sustainable change to happen, I need to find out what the reason is, what the belief is that is giving people permission to do what they're currently doing and start talking about that belief and the strengths and weaknesses of it and introduce a belief that produces healthy, sustainable change rather than dependency or any of these other things that are unhealthy. Welcome to the Ending Poverty Together podcast. I'm Shalane, and we're here to discuss big questions about poverty in bite-sized ways. And welcome to the first episode of Season 4. Today is particularly special because we at Food for the Hungry Canada are celebrating our 30th anniversary this year. Our guest today is David Collins. David was raised in Vietnam, the son of missionary parents. The majority of his life has been spent in international development, relief assistance, and education. He is an entrepreneurial visionary who has founded and given leadership to several organizations. David was also instrumental in defining an integrated strategy and business plan for shifting the focal point of the Christian NGO community from program intervention to worldview-based development. And most notably for our conversation today, David Collins was the founding president and CEO of Food for the Hungry Canada from 1994 to 2006. David, thank you so much for joining us on this 30th anniversary edition of the podcast. Pleasure. It's lovely to meet you and to be able to have this conversation with you. I am excited to hear some of your stories And in particular, I would love to just get to know you a little bit, would love to hear some of your background, and then ultimately, of course, hear how you came to found Food for the Hungry Canada. Well, my history is so rich with people, I think, who would be classified as heroes of Mm. the Christian faith. Mm. Growing up in Vietnam and living with missionaries who recognized that they were in a worse scenario, that they had no guarantees of safety. Hmm. And their faith and their trust in God was so profound that even as children, we understood the risks. Hmm. And the problem with that is it set a bar so high for me Hmm. (laughs) in terms of if I really love God, this is what I should be willing to do. I thought, how could I ever possibly reach that bar. Hmm. And so then later in years, um, having graduated from Bible school and then seminary and having pastored a church and then worked also in the student affairs department at Karenport, Uh we got a phone call from a missionary organization asking us if we would like to go back and work in Vietnam should it ever open. Hmm. And um, both Nancy and I said yes to that. Hmm. And it put us in refugee camps in the Philippines. Hmm. And we worked there for several years. But again, my whole background was this background of we need to be concerned for 
the souls of people. Mm. We needed to ensure that that they knew God and had access to God. And it was about eternity more than everyday life. Mm-hmm. And so that, that was my whole heritage. So I, I had no idea how my theology fit with working in a refugee camp. Hmm. And Christian Reform Movement has a wonderful theology for holistic ministry hmm. that I was never exposed to. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, there I was in this refugee camp, pastoring a Vietnamese church, and knowing that they needed help when it came to just transitioning to North America. They had no hmm. understanding at all of life in North America, for the most part. Mm-hmm. If we really loved them, we needed to do something about that. Hmm. And it, it led to starting things like typing classes, sewing classes, okay. um, computer literacy classes, and... I started all of those things without having any confidence that God was pleased with it. Oh, interesting. Hmm. You see, I was raised in a, in a time in history where there was this term called the social gospel. Mm-hmm. And the social gospel meant that you would end up walking away from your faith and you would become a social activist, but you would deny all the fundamental tenets right. of the Christian faith. And I, I love God. Mm-hmm. I love Jesus. I have this deep passion for him, mm-hmm. and he has done so much for me. And I just said, I am not going to do anything that is going to draw me away from that. Hmm. So I resisted everything that had to do with what, in my head, was translated social gospel. Hmm. Um, so here I am starting all of these initiatives, knowing that they conflicted, knowing they needed to be done, but not knowing if God was even pleased with hmm. it. And while I was still in the camp, I was asked for the first time if I would start Food for the Hungry in Canada. Okay. And I said, not a chance. <laughs> I mean, you can't, you can't get more social gospel than an NGO. So clearly that's not the end of the story, but it is an interesting piece of the story. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, when we came back... We were kind of bloodied by the experience. Mm. It was very difficult. It was probably one of the most profound experiences of our mm. lives, but it was it had been a really difficult scenario. And I was asked a second time if I would start Food for the Hungry, and I just said no, for the same reason. It was theology that kept me from, well, it was my love for God, actually, which is ironic because I was wrong. Hmm. So maybe... 18 months later, they asked me a third time if I would start Food for the Hungry. And that's when I actually paused and I asked God, is it possible that you could be asking me to do this? Because if they're asking me to do Mm. this, I'm not changing my answer. But if you're asking me to do this, I just want to do what you Mm -hmm. want me to do. And it took another six months. And we don't have time in this podcast to go over all the things that changed my mind. But after about six months, I was... Mm. And Nancy, we were both honestly convinced that this was God saying do this. Hmm. David, can I just ask, I appreciate that you don't have time to go over all of the things. Were there one or two things that kind of crystallized that call for you? Uh, There's probably a dozen. I was sitting, I was um, kind of in transition staff at, at a church in Moose Jaw at the time. I got a phone call Mm -hmm. from somebody out around Winkler, Manitoba, 
Mm-hmm. And that morning, I had just been sitting with God and saying, God, I have no idea if you want me to do this. I, I really need you to give me a sign because I mm. can't discern this on my own. And then within half an hour of me asking God for that, I got a phone call from this individual. And they asked me if I could help something like a hundred and some Africans in a country, I can't even remember the country, um, that needed this desperate help in Africa. And they felt they needed to call me about it. I said, why are you calling me? And they said, we don't know. We just sense that you are the person to call. I said, do I know you? And they said, no. I said, do you know me? They said, well, you haven't met, but we've heard about you. And I said, okay, I can't help you. <laughs> and mm. The only answer I could think of was, why don't you call Food for the Hungry in the States? And maybe they can. And the conversation mm. ended and I just sat there and said, was that a sign? Like, what was that? Like, that was the most bizarre phone call I'd had quite a while. I said, God, I need more than mm-hmm. that. That's not going to, you know, it's wetting, wetting the palate a little <laughs> bit, but that's not a sure proof, you know, yes, this is for you. And I just sensed in my heart I needed to drive up to Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, to talk to a specific <laughs> person, like this person's name. You need to go and talk to this person. And I said, God, I... <laughs> I just want to talk to somebody. I don't want to drive five hours to do it. <laughs> Isn't there somebody closer? Yeah. Do I have? That's right. <laughs> and, and because I was in a, in a staff position, I didn't feel I could talk to anybody in the church. I didn't want to create this, you know, instability. Mm. Right. And I could not shake yep. the fact that I had to go and talk to this guy. So mm. I called him up. I said, I think we need to talk. Can I come on up? And he says, sure, come on up. I said, can you get a speaking slot for him up there in your church so that it'll cover my gas? <laughs> so, Ever so practical. It wasn't as though I had deep pockets. Like, we didn't have any cash. <laughs> That's right. Right. So went up there. I spoke. And he said, I, I won't be home after the service immediately, but I've left the door open. Just go in and I'll, I'll meet you there. So I went over to his place. And and it wasn't long before he was there. We went into his kitchen, and I sat down on one side of the table as he sat down on the other. And behind him was this kind of a pegboard with pictures, posts, and everything on it. As he sat down, I noticed over mm-hmm. his shoulder this child sponsorship from Food for the Hungry mm-hmm. U.S., because <laughs> there was no Food for mm-hmm. the Hungry in Canada. So as he's going <laughs> sitting course. down, I see that, and I said, food for the hungry. And he gets all apologetic because he thinks I'm up there to ask him for cash for something else. <laughs> and he starts, he starts just launching into his defense of why he chose this organization. He's researched them. He's done all of this stuff. He starts telling me about who they are and what they do and everything. I, I said, wait, wait, wait. I, I've actually driven five hours to come to you to actually talk about that. That that really was a swing. Wow. That was maybe one of the last mm-hmm. resistors that got broken down. Mm-hmm. And so when we decided mm-hmm. to go, we knew we were going out. Um, we moved to BC to do this. And there was okay. a, a cash startup from Japan, Food for the Hungry. Mm. And I knew that if I took a salary, that would be depleted within the first year. And... Um, mm. 
I knew that I couldn't do this completely by myself. So I hired one person and the two of us sat down and said, okay, now what do we do? Yeah, it was strategic because I had been flown down to Scottsdale, to Phoenix, to meet with mm-hmm. Food for the Hungry International. And I, I was introduced to all the different programs and everything that the other that Food for the Hungry did. And so I, I was so naive. I just made the assumption that the two of us were supposed to start every single program that Food for the Hungry did. Okay. But for me, it was a little bit different because my emphasis was more from worldview than it was from program, Mm -hmm. where some of the other Food for the Hungrys Mm -hmm. were a bit more about program than worldview. And -hmm. when they asked me, Mm -hmm. I had a lot of people ask me, why are you starting an NGO? Like, there's enough of them in Canada. There's thousands of them in Canada. Right. I said, I'm not starting an NGO. I said, I'm starting a worldview organization that does relief and development. I'm not mm-hmm. starting a relief and development organization that also tax on worldview. I said, our starting mm-hmm. point's different. Can you unpack that a little bit? Because what what does that actually mean? Practically speaking, I can imagine somebody listening and maybe not being entirely familiar with what that, what difference does that well, make? Well, there's a lot of wonderful pad answers in relief and development. Like it's better to teach a person mm-hmm. how to fish and give them a fish, those things. Well, that's that's actually not right. true. We have taught so many people mm. how to fish and they still don't fish. Why don't they fish? Mm. Because they don't know why they're supposed mm-hmm. to fish. Um, why would I fish if you're going to give me a fish? So I'm going to wait till mm. you give me the fish because that's easier. And I, mm. I realized everything we do, we've given ourselves permission to do. Nobody actually forced me to do anything. Even if there was coercion involved, I mm. still chose to, to succumb. Mm-hmm. So every, every decision mm-hmm. I do is because I have given myself permission to do. And, and that means mm. there is something that I believe something at, the, at core the core that gives me mm-hmm. permission to make this decision. So if I want sustainable change to happen, I need to find out what the reason is, what the belief is that is giving people permission to do Mm. what they're currently doing and start talking Mm -hmm. about that belief and the strengths and weaknesses of it Mm -hmm. and introduce a belief Mm -hmm. that produces healthy, sustainable change rather than dependency or any of these other things that are unhealthy. Mm -hmm. So that was probably one of the first world pieces. If you want to see sustainable change, mm-hmm. identify the beliefs that are creating the damage and help them mm-hmm. to start to understand and, and change their convictions about specific mm-hmm. behavioral things. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting that you would say that because I've worked in variety of different roles and in the career development sector for many years before I came to Food for the Hungry. And it was always interesting to me how many people I would encounter who had never thought about what they thought about. And they had never been challenged to think about the why or what are those foundational pieces. So it just makes so much sense to me that lasting sustainable change begins with what do you believe about the decisions that you're making and why you're making And I'll tell you, when you listen to some of the rhetoric that goes on about international aid and you're creating dependency and all of those kinds of things, 
but there's a lot of truth to that, but there's a, there's a significant amount of pushback to say, don't meddle with people's culture. Don't meddle with their beliefs. Let them continue in mm-hmm. these things, but create sustainable change. I am hmm. not talking about let's bring Western culture over into another country. I am talking right. about what are the core tenets to healthy civilization and culture that needs to be embraced on a global mm-hmm. scale is are there not foundational principles upon which the world should kind of revolve? And that's controversial today. Mm-hmm. And Yes, it sure is. And I say, let the controversy continue. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I remember there was <laughs> one scenario where an individual down in the States, a reporter was wanting to get a Pulitzer. And he, he mm. actually targeted Canadian Food with Hungary as an example of bad development. So here's a little history for you. And it was because we were sending containers of vegetable seeds to Guatemala, Mm -hmm. and we were using them in an ag program that we had up there. And he said that we were padding our books Mm -hmm. because up to 20% of the seeds in those containers were flower seeds. And how could we possibly be sending flower seeds as part of healthy development? And um, so it was this whole thing. Let's find corruption somehow. Well, I won't tell you how I felt (laughs) (laughs) about this individual, but I thought this guy is so incredibly naive because Mm. when I walk into a village, I look for signs of hope and I look Mm -hmm. for three specific things. One, I look for the amount of garbage on the ground. A village Mm -hmm. with hope doesn't have garbage on the ground. I look Mm -hmm. at the condition of their homes, and I have been in so many different communities in the most horrendous of places, including Mm -hmm. in the middle of garbage dumps in urban cities, and Mm. there are homes in those garbage dumps, but I have seen people caring for their homes. And they might Mm. be built from trash, but they sweep and Mm -hmm. they maintain and they take good care. People who care for their homes have hope. And Mm -hmm. the third thing I look for is planted flowers because people with no hope do not bother with aesthetics. Mm-hmm. You see flowers planted oh, anywhere. That's so true. That yes. person has hope. And yeah. I actually was thrilled that we had flower seeds in some of those containers because it gave people mm-hmm. an opportunity to create beauty. And I have been in those communities Mm -hmm. where those seeds landed, and I've seen the introduction of a whole new diet for many of them. And I've seen the health conditions Mm -hmm. change, and it was part of an integrated strategy that included hygiene and all the rest of it, education and -hmm. and community management. These communities we could pull out Mm -hmm. of in an eight-year window. And Uh the guy didn't get his Pulitzer. I did respond to him, and I was cordial, but clearly we need to understand the importance of aesthetics in sustainable community development. Yes. So that was that was another worldview piece. Um, I'll give mm-hmm. you one more worldview piece, and that's the issue of gen- generosity. Please do. And mm. whether we're in Canada or working internationally or we live internationally, generosity is maybe – one of the most important building blocks of healthy culture in society. And the reason for that is when you're generous, 
you're not thinking about yourself. Mm-hmm. And we, we're in a very vulnerable place right now in Canada and maybe in the West yes, because yeah. the focus mm-hmm. and the advertising and the emphasis is not so much about how are other people doing. It's more along <laughs> right. the lines yeah. of how am I doing? Am I feeling safe? Am I feeling? And it's, and if, when you listen to mm-hmm. the discussion, I is in the middle of, it seems to me, over 90% of it. Now, I don't have statistics to back that up, mm-hmm. but I do not mm-hmm. hear a lot of how are you doing? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. any culture, you look at any civilization in history that moved from the how are you doing to how am I doing scenario, those cultures mm-hmm. imploded. Hmm. Uh, I would challenge our listeners to yeah. come up with any culture that really thrived with the eye in the middle of it. I can't think of one. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the things that have made us great in the past is that we have been known as a polite culture, as a culture that cares mm-hmm. for other people. Oh, Canadians, they're so friendly. Mm-hmm. Well, what's that about? Well, right. that means you're not thinking of yourself. Right. That means you're thinking of your guests, like you mm-hmm. can't be friendly and have you in the middle. And um, mm-hmm. I hope we don't lose that. I love being mm-hmm. a Canadian. Yes, I do too. David, I want to pop back a little bit because something that you said reminded me of a story that you told me recently about press coverage, but it was positive press coverage early on and specific to Rwanda. So I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share a little bit about how Food for the Hungry Canada's involvement in Rwanda uh, began and what some of the outcomes were from that. Well, I started Food for the Hungry in July 94. And our chances of survival, looking back on it, were really close to the nil category. (laughs) It's like... Hmm. Two people, <laughs> There's an honest two assessment. people are not going to launch an NGO anywhere. Like it, when Rwanda blew, the one thing I could bring to that scenario in that theater was people, because my much of my mm. life was lived internationally. I I know scores of incredibly capable individuals who live around the world or who have lived around the world. And we were able to mm-hmm. recruit um, staff who were willing to go into that genocide and work that profoundly influenced what was going on over there. And one of the news mm-hmm. um, media outlets in Vancouver actually heard about us. I never forget, I, I saw the first clip and the reporter, she was standing by our office and she says, I'm standing here in this obscure place in White Rock. (laughs) 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 Yes, yes, that's exactly right. (laughs) So the reporting was was correct. correct, But it was also favorable and it was positive. And they met with Mm. me and they, Mm -hmm. I said, I'm going to Rwanda. Would you like to Mm. bring back footage and everything and would you be open to doing a series on us and they said they would and they did a seven night series on the work that we were doing in Rwanda and that Mm. got picked up on national coverage and suddenly 
this mm. obscure group in White Rock was known across the country mm -hmm. for what was going on. And it was the beginning of credibility. And mm. had that not happened at that particular time, I don't know that we could have made it. Um, it, mm. it really was instrumental at a strategic time in our history. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm grateful for the results. Um, Rwanda still saddens me. There's a lot of, mm -hmm. a lot of things that uh, we have witnessed over the years that are the evil side of humanity. And I, yes. I, remain, I remain committed to just stand against that. Mm -hmm. The other thing, too, though, mm -hmm. that helped us in those early, early days were scores of individuals who believed in what we were doing. And it was a season of spending hundreds of hours sitting in people's homes, them bringing their friends together, going and telling the story. And mm -hmm. we were a storytelling organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, We still like, are. And we had things back then called vision trips. Do we still do those? Do we still? We do. We do. I'm leading one. You want to know how they began? I do. Uh, Tell what me. What questions? <laughs> 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 Thanks welcome. for the lead in. <laughs> it was two and a half weeks of just witnessing and hearing about horrible, horrible things. And mm -hmm. I hadn't cried once. And that really mm -hmm. disturbed me. I thought, what is going on in my own soul? Like, am I, is this just defense mechanism? But I was, I was so exhausted. I was mm -hmm. so, so troubled. Um, mm -hmm. And when I got to, um, and I had chartered a plane from Uganda to fly to Kigali. So it was a little MAF plane, Missionary <laughs> Aviation Fellowship, just okay. a little Cessna. Yep. Got back to uh, Entebbe, Uganda to catch the flight out. And I remember getting on that flight and and just saying, do you have a window seat? And they look and they say, no, sir, I'm sorry, we don't have anything left. And I think the check-in person, because it was in such an ugly time, recognized that I must be with an NGO and I must have come from a, out of the Rwandan mm -hmm. theater. I must have looked that bad. And they said, oh, just a minute, sir, I mm -hmm. have found a seat. And they put me in first class. And mm -hmm. I had to overnight in Brussels. I'm by myself, and you have to take the train from the airport into the town. And where the airline put me up, it was a nice hotel, but it was in the middle of a red light district. And it, oh my. it was a very classy red light district. These, these ladies were dressed incredibly well and, and very alluring. And every question they asked me, had I answered it, I would have said yes. Hmm. You look exhausted. You look lonely. You look like you could use mm -hmm. somebody to hold you tonight. You look like you need mm -hmm. a friend. And I remember getting back to my mm -hmm. hotel room alone <laughs> and mm -hmm. saying to God, mm -hmm. I will not last. Mm -hmm. Morally, I will not last. I will, I will fail in this job if I have to endure this every trip. Um, right. I need you to show me what I can do to protect myself, mm. protect my marriage, protect my heart. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And over the next two to three weeks, um, I was introduced to another charity, 
where the founder always had one individual who traveled with him. And I said, that's what I'll do. I'll invite people to travel with me. Whoever wants to go, I'll take them. Mm -hmm. And it builds a wall of protection Mm -hmm. around my own soul. And so I just started inviting people and I called them vision trips. Mm -hmm. But in reality, they were my moral protective trip. (laughs) But Mm. they didn't know that. My wife knew that. And she appreciated that. But throughout these trips, then I just was able to teach worldview and and introduce Mm -hmm. them to what good development can look like, invited them to participate, Mm -hmm. and rarely didn't ask. Just said, do what your heart tells you to do. Here's what the need is. Please don't do something Mm -hmm. without letting me know what you're planning to do. Like, don't give anything to them Mm -hmm. directly, but if you want to talk with me about, you know, getting involved, let's have that conversation. And and so there was this organic growth happening at the same time as this media coverage. And and I think Mm. the combination of those two things were the root reasons Mm -hmm. for Food for the Hungry success. Yeah. Well, and even in hearing this story, and I, I have known this to be true. But I believe your your humility and your willingness to own your vulnerability and place that before God and place yourself in community was foundational in in the the establishment of Food for the Hungry Canada and the growth. And so as someone who is working here now, 30 years later, I just I want to say thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your humility and um, putting those things in place because I have the privilege now of leading vision trips. And now I know why. <laughs> I know I know the why. I know that. And, and I see the multiplication effect because that was your why, but God took that and multiplied it in so many different different ways. It really was a transformational time in my entire family's life. Mm-hmm. Hindsight tells me I should have been a better father. Self-care was not, was not known back then. And no. I had really good people who joined our staff. And every time I'd come back from a trip, they'd say, okay, we need to make sure you get debris properly and everything. And I go, nah, I don't need it. I'm okay. Hmm. I'm fine. Hmm. What I didn't realize back then is how emergency response is addictive. And it's it's addictive okay. because when you go into these horrible places, and well, I am deeply honored for the fact that I, I have had that opportunity. I have these words coming into my head hmm. like privilege and, you know, but, but I mean, hmm. you, it's hard to call these places privilege, right? I mean, they're so ugly. It's right. inhumanity. Yeah. And you meet this core group of people who who are in every emergency response. They keep mm-hmm. coming back because they're very skilled in what they do. Mm-hmm. It's a special ability. It's a special skill to be able to respond in those kinds of scenarios. But they don't always work for the same organization they did the last one because – Oh, no NGO yeah. could afford to maintain an emergency response unit because they don't happen mm. all the time. 
And so you're hired for this emergency. And when you come back, it's a contract, it's over, you're released. And then another one goes and another NGO Mm -hmm. finds you, they hire you, you go for a contract. But when you're in the field, about 80% of the people are the same people. And Mm -hmm. when you come back home, it's like a soldier who's been in Afghanistan or some other place. And they don't talk about their experience with people who haven't been because you spend mm-hmm. so much time trying to explain what it was like. You've used up all your emotional units trying to explain it, that you don't have any mm-hmm. emotional units left to tell you then what actually happened. So yeah. you don't talk about it, but you really look forward mm-hmm. to the next time you can be with people who understand you. And so boom, Got here's it. another disaster. Okay. Well, I'm, we have to send a team. I'll lead it. I'll, I'll take that one. And mm-hmm. so I would, I would mm-hmm. take those. And I didn't realize how depleted my soul was becoming. Mm-hmm. And it is very difficult to think about your own needs in the context of other people whose needs are far mm. greater. Um, it is mm-hmm. almost you feel guilty about cons- being concerned sure. for what you're going through in comparison to them. And, mm-hmm. and so I would be gone three weeks out of every five in those early mm. days. And my wife raised our kids by herself for a lot of those. And hmm. then I would come home and I, I'd have all of these emotions inside. And um, she's such a wise lady, you know, when we would go to bed at night after I'd come back, she would roll over and she'd just put her finger in my eye socket. And if there was a tear, she would hold me. And if there was no tear, she'd roll back over and go to sleep. <laughs> so, like, oh, you know, that's she beautiful. Knew. She had this savvy yeah. that understood my husband wow. is carrying stuff and he's not talking about it, but I can hold him. Hmm. And I'm. On her part, it was beautiful. On my part, I was just driven to go back again, another round, another round, another round. And and I thought that's what I was supposed to do because I have these heroes in my head from my childhood who did that. And six of those heroes died as martyrs. Um, So the bar... Mm -hmm. The bar was was just this unattainable bar. And I didn't, mm-hmm. I really thought that if I had loved God with all my heart, that bar was acceptable. And it's not as though I shouldn't have done some of those things, but I should have also recognized that spending time with my children in their development years was mm-hmm. just as much an act of honoring God as sitting with mm. broken, starving wounded people who were suffering extreme scenarios. Mm -hmm. So I'm a very different person because that penny finally dropped. Hmm. I'm very Mm -hmm. thankful it did. And I am working hard in these years to let my children know how important they are to me. And Hmm. I think they all know that I regret that I didn't spend more time with them. Like, we've had those conversations. Mm-hmm. Whew. 
those you don't know what yeah. you don't know and then you look back and think i wish i had known but again what strikes me is the humility that you have to say i wish i had done something different yeah and i i wish i just listened yeah. to my staff who said you need to be debriefed because mm. the reason mm -hmm. i finally stepped out and I didn't step out. I, I stepped sideways. I went from being CEO okay. to heading up a whole Education in Canada initiative, which was my own heart. Because hmm. I believe Food for the Hungry has a responsibility to help communities in Canada serve their mm -hmm. own communities and not just take mm -hmm. on projects and initiatives with us. So, David, you're speaking awesome. my heart. As the national national education lead for Food for the Hungry Canada, that is my heart. Good, and right I'm there. encouraged. I can die happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, this podcast just got bigger than I thought, <laughs> than I anticipated. <laughs> I, I, we we are global people, and I had so many people come up with these. And I'm sorry, but they're ridiculous arguments. Why should we send money over there when there's so much need here and all the rest of it? And it was as though you hmm. have to choose between the two. And you don't. Right. No, I can I can love my neighbor and help out internationally at the same time. It mm -hmm. isn't that hard. Mm -hmm. But I, I find that it almost became an excuse for inertia. Because the Many mm -hmm. times the people who would say that really weren't doing anything in Canada either. So yeah. generosity. Back to generosity. And, and here's a, you want Absolutely. some theology? I don't know if we have time for theology, but it, it impacted me significantly when I discovered this. One of, and it was, a big, it was a big part of me deciding I should work with Food for the Hungry, but it was the hmm. story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Ugly story. Okay. And um, yeah. it's a story of violence and rape and, and just, it's, it's nasty. Mm -hmm. And it's found in Genesis chapters mm -hmm. 18 and 19. And I would have people say, so what's the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? And I would just tell them that story. I said, that's the sin. What they did, that's the sin. And then... Mm -hmm. A friend of mine said, well, have you read Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49? I said, well, I have no idea. Like, yeah, sure. Yeah, of course, I know what that one verse is in Ezekiel. So yeah. I said, right. no, I have no idea what that is. He says, well, here's the verse. Now, this was the sin of Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and indifferent. They did not care for the poor and needy. Wow. And wow. I, I looked at that verse. I said, no, that's not the <laughs> Sodom. <laughs> like, what happened huh. in Genesis 18 and 19? Like, where's that? Mm -hmm. They were overfed. They didn't care for the poor and needy. So you break those things down. You realize it's arrogance, self-indulgence, and indifference which leads to a loss of compassion. Mm. And mm. then the guy... And does not result in no, generosity. The guy said, which of those two passages describes the symptom and which describes the cause? Huh. And I said, well, 
Genesis 18 and 19 is the symptom. In Ezekiel 16, mm -hmm. 49 is the cause. And I have heard so many, so many Christians speak in a very arrogant, self-indulged, and indifferent way about their understanding of the symptom. Hmm. And they didn't realize they were in the process committing the identical root sin in their attitude hmm. towards people caught in the symptom. Mm-hmm. And that really impacted me. Am I any different than anyone else when it gets down to the root? Am I arrogant? Yeah. Am I self-indulged? Am I indifferent? Have I lost my capacity for compassion? And I realized <laughs> it was like it was more than a penny that dropped. It was more like a pound of gold. Generosity mm. is the at the heart of self-care. Mm. If I want to see mm. my community thrive, if I want to see my city thrive, if I want to see my province thrive, if I want to see my nation thrive, I need to do everything I can to help people consider others hmm. as well as themselves. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, Shalane, is a huge part of your responsibility in your job description. Mm -hmm. And I encourage you to just keep at it. Awesome. Hmm. Well, and that really segues beautifully into the the last question I have for you as we end our time together. What is your hope for Food for the Hungry Canada going forward? We're 30 years in. We have seen God's favor and his hand upon this work. What is your hope? for FH going forward? I think that's a kind of easy one. I hope that you recognize <laughs> and remain faithful to being a worldview organization that does relief and development, mm -hmm. and you don't succumb to the temptation of being a relief and development agency that tries to tack on worldview. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You won't be different than anybody else if you do the latter. Right. Yeah. Yes, and I am encouraged to be able to sit here and say, that's where we are. And I'm excited that we are moving forward in that. We talk so often about root causes, about root issues, and what is, what's underneath? What's at the basis of all of this? What's at the core? Well, Isaiah 58 is a great chapter. What mm -hmm. is true fasting? And mm. um, do away with the yoke of uh, oppression, you know, satisfy the needs of the oppressed. If you spend yourself mm -hmm. on behalf of the needy, like those are all things. And then it says, then your mm -hmm. light is actually going to shine. And, and mm. it talks about the benefits of caring for other people, mm -hmm. but not turning a blind eye to the issues of oppression and injustice and yeah. and just unkindness that that mm -hmm. is beginning to circulate now. Mm -hmm. David, thank you so much for this. I I love hearing your stories. I love hearing the backstory to this organization that I love and feel privileged to be part of and to work with. Is there Anything else that you were hoping that you'd get to say today that I didn't ask you or that comes to mind as we wrap up our time? Probably not. 
Um, the things, <laughs> the things that okay. are just circulating in my head now are all the funny stories that, <laughs> and they just take too long to tell. I'll tell you, they, they, okay. we have, we had, and we have such wonderfully incredible staff and and people who have aligned with this vision and this mission. Um, and we've shared life together. And, mm-hmm. and those friendships are, will last forever. And, and there mm-hmm. are people I can just pick up the phone and start talking to and no time has passed, even though we may not have talked for five mm-hmm. years. It, it is so, well, precious is probably the best term. It is, it is so hmm. incredibly special. And mm-hmm. I, I remember some of these jokes that you hear, you know, the guy, there's a group of guys and one guy yells number one and everybody laughs. And the guy yells number six and everybody laughs. Number nine, everybody laughs. And then this guy, <laughs> he hasn't a clue what's going on. He yells number 11, nobody laughs. And they look at him and he says, I guess it's how you told it. Like, like they 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 all knew the story. You didn't have to go into the details to to, to be able to to yes. be with people who know you and to know that the that community. you are known. How many mm-hmm. people long to be known? And mm-hmm. food for the hungry, maybe more than any other experience in my life, gave me a group of people like that who know me Mm. and I know them Mm -hmm. and they know I know them and they know that Mm. I know that they know me. Like, I mean, it's, (laughs) you just can't get away with anything, but they will be there if you need them. Yeah. And that is a lasting gift. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for letting me and for letting our listeners know you a little bit more today. I really appreciate you being here. Pleasure. To explore what your next steps could be, or to find out more about FH Canada, start by checking out fhcanada.org resources. 